Hey everybody, this is episode 124 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas on a rainy spring day here. I've got an interesting interview for you today with New York Times bestselling author Barton Dugard, who recently re-released his book, To Be a Runner, in paperback form. We're going to be interviewing him in a second, and I'll give you a full rundown on Martin a little bit later in this intro, but first we've got some current events to talk about. A couple of big ones. First of all, we've got to recap London, and then I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the Castor Semenya uh, situation, which recently it was ruled that in order for her to compete in the 800 meter or 1500 meter races, that she will need to take testosterone suppression drugs or therapy. So we'll get to that as well with my thoughts and reactions. But first of all, let's talk about London. I would say that I did pretty well, I think, with my predictions on London as I did the preview here with JoJo last Friday. Kipchoge won, and he did honestly exactly what he said he was going to do. After Berlin, some people may remember this, but when he jumped to smash the world record into a 139, he said after Berlin, and when they asked him what would he do next, he said, I'm gonna, I got to run 202 because I haven't run 202 yet. And guess what? He did it in London. Just putting on an absolute clinic. The gap wasn't as big as it was in Berlin, but it didn't really matter. He was in control of the race the entire time. At one point, jumped in front of the pacers and sort of egged the guys to come with him and then eventually pulled away, dropping a 420 mile late in the race to get it done. And then when he jogged across the finish line, he looked honestly like he could have gone for another 26 miles. It was just an absolute clinic put on by Kipchoge as you would, as as we predicted, as you would expect. You had Garamu finishing second in an impressive result for him. I had picked him in third, but I think for him, who has shown, or and those two like Katata, who has shown success at races like Dubai, where it's all about just going out fast on a flat course, I think a, a race with Kipchoge in it actually plays to the strengths of those two. And Garamu, in this case, got second place. I had picked him for third. I'd picked Katata for second. He ended up in fourth. With a surprise athlete getting third there in Wazahyun. What can we say? At this point, Kipchoge has won, I think it's 11 straight marathons if you count breaking two. And he's won 12 out of 13 marathons. He's done it just in style with total dominance. And now he's run 201, 202, 203, 204, and I believe 205. So he's just done it every which way and never in this case really looked like he was in trouble or that anything was in doubt, even though it wasn't until later in the race until he made his definitive move. So hats off to Kipchoge. I love what he said afterwards when they asked him about if he already knew what he was going to be doing next and he said 
he said in true Kipchoge fashion, he said in Kenya, we don't chase two rabbits at once. We only chase one rabbit at once. Implying that his focus had been London. That's all he had thought about. So he got that done and had not yet thought of, had a chance to think about what might be next. And so Yoda strikes again with, with the almost proverb-like quotations that he puts out there. And what can you say? He's the greatest of all time. He's not showing any signs of anybody catching up to him anytime soon, even though Garamu got a time that would have been a few seconds under the prior world record. Kipchoge is the great one and maybe the great, well, the greatest of all time, certainly for the marathon. And now arguably potentially in that conversation for distance running in general. What can we say? Hats off to Kipchoge. It was a beautiful thing to watch. And then, of course, as I picked, Mofera ended up fifth place, could not handle the hot pace and faded in the grand scheme of things relatively early before the real fireworks went off for the podium. So I can't say I'm sad about that. I may have made it obvious I'm not a, I'm not a Farah fan. And I think a race like this with that kind of hot pace, he's just not quite ready for yet in his transition to the marathon. Will he ever be? We will have to see. But to be honest, I was happy to see him fade to fifth. Still in a respectable time, solid race for him overall, but nowhere near the Mo versus Elliot Kipchoge battle that the British press was hoping for. And again, can't say I'm sad about it. So there you go. That's London men's race. Well done, as we expected, Elid Kipchoge. Incidentally, he did say afterwards the next day in his post, in his day after press conference, that he does expect at some point to do all six major marathons, which means that Tokyo, Boston, and New York might get some love at some point, as well as Chicago. So that's a big deal for U.S. fans that he could be coming over to this side of the pond the pond to race although i kind of wonder at what point that'll happen because he he has to he's going to have to get a payday big enough to not defend a title he did that with breaking 2 not defending his london title in 2017 and but somebody one of those us races chicago boston new york is going to have to pay him enough to justify him coming and foregoing that defending champion payday for just showing up because I don't see him losing Berlin or London anytime soon. So at some point you got to break the cycle and somebody's got to pay him to show up here in the U S and that's going to be a, a big sum of money. Although I believe well worth it for one of those races. I'd love personally to see him at a New York or Boston without Pacers think that'll be more interesting and more dynamic than a track meet as as you would probably see in Chicago but we will see but good news for US fans that Kipchoge has said he's gonna he's gonna do all six majors it also means he's not retiring anytime soon so that's cool to see on the women's race really really interesting it didn't play out in any way like I expected that lead group did not go with their pacers and so Kazi Kitani Chirono as well as Chiriot chose to hang back, which forced 
The American contingent of Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson to also hold back a little bit from their originally planned opening half pace. They were supposed to go out in low 71s, but ended up going out in high 71 with the lead pack that was together as those 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 four major champion winners kind of all looked at each other and waited for somebody to make a move and then Koski did it and she she broke things apart pretty quickly and ended up running a 66 second half faster than Katani's race second half of her race in New York and the fastest half marathon ever run by a woman inside a marathon ever Previously, that record was held by Keitani as she blew the doors off New York last year. Koski also had the sixth fastest final 7K. 7K being just a, just a little over four miles. She had the sixth fastest final 7K in the entire race. And so that includes men and women. So she was top six overall for the final 7K and just absolutely shattered the finish to win decisively over Vivian Chiriot. And then Rosa Dereje ended up third. She'd somebody, she's somebody who I mentioned in my preview as somebody who could you know, potentially pull an upset or sneak onto the podium. And she did. And then you had Toronto and Kitani ended up fifth with Emily Sisson in sixth to get a debut in 223, a little bit slower than what I thought or what I predicted for her, but I think part of that's due to the fact that those tactics up front ended up causing her to go out a little slower than even she had planned. Molly Huddle ended up fading a little bit, and she was 12th, but did able to was able to secure a PR and secure, of course, that coveted Olympic standard running in the 226 range. To me, the story of this race is obviously Bridget Koski and the fact that she was able to just blow this group apart in the final second half and make it look relatively easy. I think it implies that she's got to be a potential favorite if she can stay on form or probably the favorite for the Olympic gold next year. I think it also shows that if these two women, Kitani and Koski, can run a 66 minute half marathon in the second half of a marathon that absolutely puts Paula Radcliffe's world world record of a mixed race of 215 in play for them at some point if they can get the right conditions and the right pacers and the right crew of women with them that obviously wasn't in the cards this time but could be for one of those ladies if they decided to go for it if they can run 66 for one half of a marathon I would think that they could put together a 2.15. Now, granted, the start was relatively slower, and she ended up with basically a five-minute negative split, which is pretty insane. But anyway, Kosgi, hats off, definitely positions her as a favorite for Tokyo. Also makes me wonder if potentially there might be a Paula Radcliffe record attempt that would go after, that they might go after at Berlin because they won't be able to do it next year due to the Olympics. So that's one thing. Secondly, I think Keitani really blew this. Now, obviously, 
she wasn't able to hang at the end, so maybe she just wasn't on form coming back from her New York win. But I do think she would have been better had she got, or she would have had a better shot had she gotten the group to go with the Pacers and kept that pace relatively honest for them early. I believe those Pacers were supposed to go out in 109 or 108.30, and they ended up going, the group ended up going about three minutes slower. So that, I think, played to the hands in this case of Koski and ultimately cost Keitani a podium spot. So the last two years, she hasn't been able to figure it out in London. And so that's that. That's a question mark and maybe indicates a potential changing of the guard. Keitani was, I think, by all accounts, by any analyst's thought process after her New York win, was the greatest women's marathon are in the game right now and I think that title has to shift over to Bridget Kosky at least until further notice after this performance so those are a couple of thoughts on the front women Emily Sisson sixth in a major 223 which is actually an American record for a women a record eligible women's only race incidentally for whatever that's worth it's also would technically be a a American debut record on a record eligible course. Jordan Hesse ran faster at Boston a couple of years ago for her debut. And so from a technical standpoint, I would think they would consider Emily Sisson as having that debut record because Boston is not a record eligible course. Doesn't really matter because Emily Sisson's fast. It now puts her in the conversation for being one of those top three women going in as potential favorites for Atlanta next February. Jordan, I think, probably still holds that favorite title because of her result at Boston this year and the fact that she's finished third in three marathon majors and has a faster PR on a tougher course than Emily Sisson. But we will see what this means for Emily, Emily Sisson. And I think it definitely puts her in that conversation for that second spot. Potentially. I like Amy Hastings crag as well as Des as the other two names that we'll have to sort out as favorites and, and how they might stack up for, for next year. And so congrats to Emily Sisson crushing this race, showing that she was made to be a marathoner. I'm so glad that Ray Tracy let her, move up a little bit early for that training camp. Uh, she's only 27, shows that the future is bright for American marathoners. Now, we got to talk about Molly Huddle. This has to be a disappointing result for her, even though she got a PR, because obviously she wanted much more. She thought they could run a 222 or 223. Was with Emily Sisson through just passed halfway from what I understand and then gradually just couldn't hang with that pace and had to go into basically manage mode. And in her post-race interview, she talked about potentially having to DNF or thinking about DNFing, but realizing that she needed to stay in the game so that she could get that Olympic standard, which she was able to do. Also ended up with the PR. So really impressive that she was able to gut this out. But it does raise questions as to what her mindset will be in future marathons. As I mentioned in the preview podcast, I think Molly lacks confidence at the distance, which is part of her challenge. 
even though I don't think she really should because of her resume broadly. She lacks confidence. It'll be interesting to see what this does for her confidence. I think on one hand, it might it might help her that she was able to, to grind, you know, once she is able to reflect on this, that she was able to grind out a PR on a day that wasn't her best could also further dent that confidence. And, but if I had to predict where she might fall for Atlanta next February, I don't think she's going to be on the podium, but I do think she'll be on the 10K podium next summer. So I think she'll be an Olympian, but I'm just predicting that the marathon isn't quite her her thing yet, at least. And part of that is because, for whatever reason, she lacks confidence over the distance. Still a huge fan of Molly Huddle, though, and I'm really impressed by the way she was able to gut this out, even though she wasn't having her best day. That can be tough, especially in the situation that she likely ended up in, in here where she was running by herself, probably no one around her as those other ladies pulled away to be able to still hang in there with things not going well early. She said she started to feel, or she wasn't feeling great from about 10K on. And that's a really long day to try to run three, 20 miles on legs that aren't, that aren't feeling fresh. And so really, really impressive of her to get that PR and to hold things together. But I do wonder if this will continue to cause doubt for her as to whether or not the marathon is her thing. So there you go. That's, those are some takeaways from London. Really, really fascinating races. And of course, shout out to the London marathon for, for putting on an amazing race and always getting that's one of the most talented fields there. Men and women every single time. So that's London. Let's talk quickly about the Castor Semenya situation. I've had people already reach out to me and ask me my opinion. It was announced this week that the arbitration board that Castor had appealed to regarding the IAAF ruling that she had to go through testosterone suppression therapy in order to compete in the 400 to 1500 meter races. The board ruled in favor of the IAAF, which basically means that Castor has to prove that her testosterone levels are are below five and or compete in races that are 5,000 meters or greater if she wants to compete in her current state. So that was a little bit of an unexpected decision for many because the evidence that that IAAF had submitted regarding these rules was a little bit suspect. There were many people questioning the studies, including Ross Tucker, who has been, he's on Twitter at Science of Sport, which is a really, really good follow. He's got way more information on this topic if you want to go check him out on, on Twitter, that, and he's way more educated on it than I could ever be. He actually, and he's actually in favor of some testosterone-based limits to separate the male and female categories in competition. But in this arbitration case, he actually testified against the IAAF because he believed their science, their reasoning for the standard that they were setting was suspect. So 
with that being said, basically Caster has to go through testosterone suppression therapy as well as any other intersex athletes like her have to do that in order to compete in the female category. And Twitter has been all over the place on this. There are passionate and I believe partially correct, partially right perspectives on both sides of this. This is probably the trickiest issue facing sport in a very, very long time. And man, there's really no good answers. There's really no good answers. But I just wanted to make a few thoughts or have a, I have a few thoughts from my perspective that may or may not help you with your perspective. But this is definitely a tricky topic to talk about. So I will do my I will do my best not to offend as I talk about it. But to me the first message is that man, I feel I feel bad. I feel terrible for Casa Semenya. This is not a situation that is her fault that she asked for, that she should be facing. It's not fair that she became the face of this issue because there are others like her that fall into this intersex category. And so it's just terrible, and I can't even imagine the the feelings, the discrimination, the challenges that she has faced, both privately and publicly, and that's just not fair. So I feel for her for sure, even though I can't in any way empathize because I just, there's no way to know what she's going through and how she's feeling. So that's point one. I think we should also so show sympathy and empathy as, as much as we can for Castor Semenya. The related part of that is that she has just been a class act the entire time, has kept this above board, even though she would have right to not. And so also hats off to her for being such a class act in all of this. Now, my next point, and this actually comes partially from a blog by Sasha Golish, who was recently on the podcast. She wrote her perspective on it in an editorial online that this this ruling has to bring up the fact that you've got to consider making additional categories. A la the Paralympics, where they have different categories depending on level of disability. And in this case, because gender, as we're learning in sex, probably is what I should say more accurately, sex is not binary. There's a spectrum, and there are those that fall in different places on that spectrum. Because of that, it is impossible to take humans, individuals that fall on a spectrum, and really fairly place them into a binary male-female categorization. It's, it's impossible. Science would tell us now that there is no such thing as a binary system in as it relates to sex or gender now if that's true just like in the situations with disabled athletes where you have a spectrum to that compete in Paralympics in different categories but depending on level of disability then perhaps we need the same in as it relates to sex in in races as well and so that's something to think about. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm sure it would be complicated, but it might be a paradigm shift that we all need to consider. 
beyond that, if we're not going to go to more categories, male, female, intersex, perhaps, if we're not going to go to more categories, then you still need some way to separate male and the male and female categories that's fair. And it would seem, based on what many, uh, many experts on this topic are saying, it would seem that testosterone is the best metric at which to separate the male and female categories among a lot of less than ideal options. If, but, but if we're going to go down that path, then it needs to be decided in a way that's fair for everybody that has science backing it. And also, in my opinion, that has intersex and female athletes at the table making these decisions. And so that's my f- fundamental issue with this ruling from the IAAF and the arbitration board is that it seems like these decisions, this line in the sand was drawn by mostly men who don't know what they're talking about. And while I think that it seems like a testosterone limit of some sort, if you're going to have two categories, is the best of a bunch of less than ideal options. If that's true, then the decision shouldn't be made by a bunch of men in a dark room in wherever the IAAF headquarters are. It should be made by intersex athletes and women who are actually affected by this. And I don't feel like that representation has been there, so it makes me feel like even though they may have chosen the best available metric to separate the categories, we're still not at a place where it's fair or where it's been decided in a way that that we should accept it. So that's kind of where I'm at on it. But man, is it complicated. And again, if you, if you want to go to at Science of Sport, Ross Tucker's Twitter, he's got a link to his article on this, which covers this in really, really great detail and shows the complexity of the issue. I would highly encourage you to check that out to get educated if you haven't already. But those are my thoughts as admittedly inferior as they probably are on this topic as I am not an expert. But hopefully that allows you to help form your thoughts and provide you a little bit of perspective on this very, very challenging situation. But as it stands, Castor Castor Semenya cannot compete. Her last race actually under the current rules was until the deadline hits is was actually today in the Doha Diamond League where she won in the 12th fastest 800 meter time ever running a 154 to win by three seconds over Francine Nyansaba who is believed is also to be an intersex athlete. So she went out with a bang today and we'll have to see where things go from here but as it stands she won't be able to compete beyond this point in in any 800-meter, 1500-meter races unless she goes through therapy. She has said she will not. And so there's some speculation that she might move up to the 5K potentially. We'll have to see. She also has the option, I believe, to appeal the arbitrary arbitration court's decision. So we will watch this to see how it plays out. But as it stands, she will not be able to compete in the World Champions this Championship this year in Doha. So... There you go. That's my intro. 
A lot going on there. Very, very complex topic. Now I want to turn to my interview with Martin Dugard. Martin Dugard is a New York Times bestselling author. Some of you might know him as author of what is deemed the Killing Series, which is a nonfiction series on basically what started as presidential deaths. So the first one was Killing Lincoln. Then there was a Killing Kennedy and subsequent Killing Reagan and subsequent books, subsequent books on various deaths, high-profile leadership deaths, particularly presidents. He co-wrote those books with Bill O'Reilly, the now infamous TV personality, and those books have sold over 12 million copies. He's also got a, a host of other nonfiction books out there, and so you can definitely check those out. But Martin Dugard grew up as a competitive runner in high school and college, is also currently now and has been for the last 14 years head cross-country coach for Jacera Catholic High School in California, where he's won several state titles with his team there. So he's a runner. And even though he focuses on historical nonfiction topics mostly, he's also written a host of magazine articles on all sorts of endurance sports and also a book that I'll be talking to him about called To Be a Runner that was just recently re-released this month in paperback form with some new content about, it's basically a series of essays on his perspective as a runner. And for those who may have read the George Sheehan book, Running and Being, it follows a similar type of style basically telling stories from Martin's life about his running experiences and what that has taught him both about training and also about life. And it's a really interesting read. I actually read it on my, my spring break trip this, this year at the beach with the kids. And it's a quick read, interesting read. And while not necessarily all of the essays will resonate with you, they're all really, really well-written, good stories. And I think a really compelling read with lots of good nuggets from each of those that may apply, you know, to all of us a little bit differently. And so my interview today, I'll be talking to Martin about his book, To Be a Runner. Would highly recommend you go check it out. Really fun and interesting read. And hopefully after this chat with him, you'll, you'll want to go check it out. So here we go. Martin Dugard. Welcome Martin Dugard to the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to talk to you about your re-release of the book, To Be a Runner, now coming out in paperback form with some additional content in this version. So thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. I've gotten to read the book, really, really enjoyed it. And I will say that you captured my attention with the author's note to start. And I know that wasn't in the first edition. And so for those who maybe have already read the book, To Be a Runner, which came out in 2011 the first time, then I think it's worth reading just for that that author's note and some of the new content in this version. But you mentioned George Sheehan in the book Running and Being as a model of sorts for this book, to, to Be a Runner. And George's book was one of my first to read as I became a fan of nonfiction running books. And his book, Running and Being, I think is is a must-read for all runners and sort of a running philosophy book of sorts that covers all sorts of topics from training advice to life advice to 
how to approach the mental aspects of running. And I think your book does a good job in some ways of doing the same things. But let's talk about running and being. As someone who's obviously read that book and, in, and been inspired about it and by it in some way, what do you take away from Sheehan's book? Uh, it's interesting because as an author, I, I mean, I just, I'm looking at it, it's across the room on my bookshelf right now. It's, it's a, the kind of book when it was when it first came out in the mid seventies was, you know, it's a very philosophical, it's very slow paced, um, deep book. And I, I think in this day and age, a book like that would never see the light of day because it's such, it's so methodical and thoughtful. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful book and his essays are long and they kind of go down a bunch of rabbit holes and you have to kind of go with them. But mm-hmm. it, it's one of those, uh, you know, takes on running that really, that is beautiful. And that's, that's what inspired me because I wanted to write a modern day version of running and being just because I, I think there's a great divide in our sport between the people who just want to, you know, do their first marathon, do their first 5k. And then you have the elite level runners and and the, the two don't really come together very often. You know, running is the greatest participatory sport in the world. And yet most, you know, most, Workaday age group runners would be hard pressed to to know who Matt Centrowitz is or or Mo Farah, because you know unlike soccer where your average soccer player, for instance, would know all the big stars, running is such an uh, it's such an individual pursuit that I think we look inward more often than we look outward to kind of comb- to blend our sport, and that's what I had hoped to accomplish was to write something like running and being, but also with you know that has that every man take, but at the same time you know, bring in that elite level thing with some of the training notes so that people could kind of see that the sport is, is very all encompassing. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because as we were talking before we came on, that's a big part of the reason why I do this show is to connect those two things is build fans of the sport, but also to, to tell the stories of the elite side of the sport so that those everyday runners can relate. One of the things that frustrates me as a fan of our sport is that I think there are certainly those reasons as that you mentioned why there's that divide in that running is an individual pursuit and a lot of people see it that way. And so they may not be connecting to running at the highest level. Running is also one of those things where it's hard to imagine running a 430 mile at the end of the Boston Marathon like the two gentlemen did, Toronto and DeCisa, on Monday. And comparing that to somebody who might be trying to run five hours for the marathon, it just seems almost like it's so different but I also think that the powers that be in our sport tell that message or, or try to separate it. And there's a sort of an elitism in parts of our sport that frustrates me that sort of says to that everyday runner that they cannot access the same training concepts or the same approach to the sport that the elite does. Do you think that's true? No, I don't. And, you know, it's funny because she and himself um, – I remember a long time ago, I actually met him one time at the LA Marathon Expo, but he wrote something one time that I've, I've always found interesting is that the perceived level of exertion um, and the level at which, let's say the level at which we get uncomfortable when we run, you know, with, as we, as we, as we pick up the pace, it feels the same, you know, physiologically to an everyman as it does to an Olympic champion. They're just they're they're because their training volume because of the years of aerobic development, uh, a, you know, an Olympic level runner can run faster and can definitely do things like that 430 mile at the end. But they, but their body feels the same. They suffer the same way 
as somebody who's ran their first 5K. So that's, I think that's where the common bond is. We, we all suffer the same. It's not like there's a, a higher level of suffering. It's just that we all go out there, we put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, whether, and I think, <laughs> I think that's why sometimes we can all have those days where we kind of imagine ourselves as an Olympic level runner as we make our way down the trail or, or get around the track. Absolutely. When, I'd love to go back to your start in running, and I I really connected with your story talking about your first mile in the gym with your parents when they were training for the or training to complete their hundred mile club there in Indiana. Because I've got th- three three kids, two boys that have both gotten into running in some ways following my example, but in, in other ways sort of pursuing it on their own path. And both of them ran. They're, they're now eight and 10, both of them ran their first 10 K last year at, at their desire, which was cool for me to see, but it was interesting for me to see that inspiration coming from your parents to, to get out there and do that first mile. Connect those dots for me from that first mile in the gym as your parents were doing their hundred mile club to how then running progressed from there, because you don't, you don't necessarily tell the whole story chronologically about where you went from that first mile. Yeah, it's um, thanks. That's that's uh, nice to, to connect the dots. So when I was six, as you mentioned, my dad was an Air Force pilot, and he and my mom, you know, running was the new thing. You know, Kenneth Cooper's book Aerobics had just come out. So this is 1967. I'm kind of dating myself there, but they were, you know, they were running. It was ten laps around the gym at the at the, at the base gym there, and my brother and I would just sit in the stands and watch them. And one day I was just so bored, I thought I would try to run a mile. And my brother Matt ran with me. So we, we did our 10 laps. And, you know, as I say in the book, 10 laps around that gym at the time seems like the 100 miler to me now. It was just, it was such a formidable thing. But to have actually said that I ran a mile made me feel like I was a runner, like it's kind of special gift and some kind of special talent. And I didn't really do anything with it until, you know, you were that age, you do Little League, you do, I was in judo, I was in all sorts of little things. But when I was in sixth grade, we did that old president's physical fitness test. And there was a 12-minute run for time. And at the, I was a very small kid. I was only about four, five, or four, six in the in the sixth grade. So when we did this run, instead of being the last guy picked for the you know the basketball game, I I was astounded to find that I could run faster than anybody, and not just by a little bit, by a lot. I was lapping people, and it was this amazing feeling of success. And so what I began to do was I had a paper out at the time. I would finish my paper out at 530 in the morning and literally put on my pro keds and go run four miles just because it felt fun to run. It got me out of the house. It was, it was my thing. And that, that kind of morphed into junior high school track and then uh, junior high school cross country and then on into high school track and cross country. And, and I was a, it was all state and cross country in Michigan. And then we moved to California that I was all CIF. So I could, I could run pretty well, and so I ran in college. And at the time, there really wasn't much of a post-collegiate world. And so I did what most runners do with, did at the time. Is I when when high school, when college ended, my college career ended with a with my final steeplechase. I just you know quit running cold turkey, just mm-hmm. because it seemed like there was nothing, no more mountains to climb, so to speak. I'd already run a marathon. I ran a marathon when I was a senior in high school, so it didn't seem like there was like a next level to go. And, you know, over the next four years, I kind of just got lost. I think running had always been kind of my, my North Star. And without that, all of a sudden, 
you know, just I kind of lost my way, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I lived down on the peninsula here in Newport Beach, uh, which is like a, a party mecca. And uh, I gained all sorts of weight. And one day somebody told me they're going to run a 5K. And I said, oh, I used to I used to run competitively. And they looked at me as if as if <laughs> I was crazy. Like you, that large person in front of me, was a competitive <laughs> runner. And that's a slap in the face. <laughs> right. So, uh, so, you know, I got back, I was, I, my way back in was triathlon, which was the thing at the time that I did adventure racing. These two week races are in different parts of the world. And then um, I was just about to start this adventure race in Patagonia. And it was going to be a two week thing of, you know, hiking and mountain climbing and rappelling and whitewater rafting. And just before the start of the race, I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if I was just a runner again, if I didn't have to do all this other shit, if I could just, flat out, <laughs> all I could do is run. And that's what happened. If, you know, I, when, I, when that race was over, I kind of just went back to running, got back into, you know, ran some marathons. And and then one way or the, the other, that led me to, you know, I, I, you know how work kind of intrudes sometimes. I, I took a little break to really focus on work for a while. Again, gained a lot of weight. Running was the way back in. And then um, and then magically, I became a high school cross-country coach, and which I've been doing the last 15 years. So you know, obviously I still run, but I, uh, but the coaching right now is, is the main focus of my running activity. And to be able to give something back after literally 50 plus years of, of running, taking a little bit of that knowledge I've learned, but then learn new things. I mean, there's so many great things to learn as a coach about how to train athletes. Um, it's super fun. I just, I, that's, that's my journey. That's the narrative arc of my journey. And, you know, 57 right now, I'd like to be running, you know, 30 years from now. Running the rest of your life. I was reaching, I coach an athlete who's in her 50s, and she recently came to me with that goal of just wanting to run for the rest of her life, you know, which might be 20, 30, 40 years. We don't, we don't know at this point. And you talk about that same goal in the book. What do you think the keys are to longevity in this sport? You know, I've had a lot of time to think about this. I think that one thing that we don't think enough about is strengthening the, the whole body. <clears throat> you know, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a, a knee surgery a few years ago and it was just, I, I thought it was just years of running. Um, but the, but the surgeon told me it was because I'd never taken the time to strengthen my hips and my glutes. So all the pressure in the body was going onto my knees and you can, and it can also translate it rolls downhill into the ankles too. So I think as a runner, we have to, we can't just run. We have to spend time working on our core. We have to spend time um, really strengthening our hips and our glutes to prevent getting injury. We have to work on mobility. And I think something else that we, you know, anybody can run, any body size, any body shape can run. But I have found that people who run for a long time tend to stay on the leaner side. And that's not to say you need to be one of those really, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive people who just only eats like one peanut for, for dinner or something like that. But it, it, I think it helps to, to kind of avoid putting on too much weight. Yeah. There's also, I guess, as I think you've discovered, there's a mental side too. You know, you've had these starts and stops in your life where you say you put on some weight, kind of gotten away from it and then come back to it. What do you think from that standpoint, from saying mentally engaged and, and, and continuously consistently running without bigger breaks, What's the key to that part of the equation? I think it's to keep it fresh. I think it's hard to run. Some people could do it. I can't do it. But, you know, you get up in the morning and you say, I'm going to go run my, my six miles. And they run the same course 
every day. There, I know there are two women in my town. I know their loop, and I have seen them run that loop for 30 years. I've actually literally watched them age because I'll be, I'll be driving and I'll see them. I've seen them at different phases of life as they've run that same four-mile loop every single day, and that's their thing. But I, I think for me, maybe it's my short attention span, but I think for me, the thing is to you know, find a new trail, find a, a different motivation, find things that avoid making running just this humdrum um, thing that you feel like you need to do to maintain fitness as opposed to something that you love to do and you, and that you can't wait to get out there every day. And I think realistically, it's hard as a runner. I mean, it's, it's not an easy pursuit when it comes to some of the pain tolerance you need to endure when you're having a bad day. I think, I think that on those days, you need to find a way to keep it fresh. You need to find a way to, to motivate yourself and get out the door. And if you don't feel like going out the door on that day, then don't, you know, take a break because sometimes we need that mental, that mental time off from just even a day away from running to rejuvenate ourselves. You know, it's that old biblical philosophy of taking a Sabbath every, every Sunday. It's not necessarily the idea of a Sabbath is to, um, is to, really shut everything down, but it is the time to kind of refocus yourself and repurpose yourself for the week to come. So, you know, a day away from running every, every week isn't such a bad thing. It is hard though, when you stop to get started again, I remember after we had our first child, I have three, I didn't run for nine months because I couldn't figure out how to orchestrate running into my new routine with the little one at home and the sleepless nights and so forth. When you've had those breaks, what has been the key to overcoming the inertia of stopping? The truth is, well, first, you know, you got to get out. You got to put the shoes on and get out there. What I do is I go someplace where nobody can see me. I literally go someplace where it feels judgment free. And and then I just go whatever pace I can run. But, but knowing that no one is looking at me, no one is saying, oh, that guy is really slow, you know, and and then slowly building the mileage back up go from you know like with my with my athletes with with freshman runners um we start with i tell them if they've never run before run four minutes and walk a minute run four minutes and walk a minute and then slowly reduce the amount of time that you walk and that's what i do myself when i'm making a comeback i i as a matter of fact i just finished a new book and i've been spending a lot of time away from the office it's what i've been doing lately is i drive over to a local trailhead i know that nobody's out there and I'll kind of trot about three miles very, very slowly, knowing that if I do it every day and if I maintain it, within about two weeks, the body will adapt. And then, the you know, all the other physiological things, you know, it'll be easier to breathe. It'll be able easier to pick up my, my, my gait, all those things that kind of come after you do it. But you've got to do it for about two weeks before it, before it doesn't suck anymore. I usually say four to six for people just to, just so that in case, in case after two, they aren't quite there that they still, they still stick with it because it is just about kind of grinding for a little bit until eventually it comes back. You know, that's, it does come back. The light will come to the end of the tunnel, but you just got to keep, keep getting out there. No, you know, the thing about it is, and it always comes back. It really is. It's the weirdest thing because the body adapts and, but I'll tell you, those first few days, it feels like it's never going to come back. And then, but I, I love when you get to that point where all of a sudden you you feel like you're kind of floating a little bit. You're out somewhere running, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I feel pretty good. I'm not so I'm not so inwardly focused right now. I'm looking around at the scenery. 
Um, I'm enjoying the pace. I'm, I'm, I'm lost in my thoughts about some project I'm working on or some kind of problem I'm trying to solve. And that's when you kind of get back to really feeling like you're truly running as, as opposed to being aspirational about getting into it. So you mentioned variety as being important to staying in things. And you also referenced earlier doing the adventure, these adventure races, the raid being one that you did, I think, a couple of times. And that's really the world's first modern adventure race. I got hugely into the Eco Challenge when I was in college watching Mark Burnett's production. production. I'm excited for that to be coming back. Talk about that race. What's it like to get out there for two weeks and suffer in all sorts of ways it's weird because because you're going non-stop when you first start the race it feels overwhelming you're going to go about 400 to 600 miles you're, you're going to be traveling with a group of people and it's not the physical dynamic that undoes most teams it's the it's the mental dynamic it's that it's, it's getting along with your teammates making sure that when you're bonking that you don't get angry and say something that you really don't mean um you know, and I had a really bad team experience in Patagonia in 1996, and I, I kind of felt like, why am I doing this? Why do I want to come back and do it again? But I went back and did it in Lesotho in 1997, and, and this time I did it with a group of people who I was actually literally stuck on a team. I didn't have a team at the start of the race, and I was with this 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 group of Frenchmen who who had lost a teammate, so they they needed one more person, and it was literally the highs and lows, you know, we, we got lost and that's the worst thing when you get lost out there because it seems so fruitless. There was a period after about 10 days in where we flipped a, a raft in, in class five whitewater. And one of our teammates literally had a, a psych, you know, a break, a, a psychotic break. And she just literally shut down and I had to finish mm. the last 100 miles of the race by myself. And you're flooded with these emotions of, you know, why am I doing this? You know, how are we, how are we going to go on? It feels staggering and overwhelming. But then when you cross the finish line and you get it done, it's this really great high because you've done something that you kind of in the back of your mind didn't think you could do. And it's a fantastic feeling to finally finally get it done. I can imagine. I, I talked to Ian Adamson at one point. He was oh, yeah. one of the best you know, adventure racers in the world, adventure racing world champion. He's done all sorts of things in the sport. And he talked about how sleep was important, that a lot of other teams didn't think that they were sleeping because they were moving so quickly and, and, and winning a lot of these things. But they would go every four hours, he would talk about four to six hours and then take little naps. They would get somewhere off the trail, hide out. So people didn't know their strategy. They would sleep. And they would get back in it, and that sort of was the key for them to be able to move quickly and keep going for that long of a period of time, as well as to stay sane as a team. Did you guys sleep? How did you? What was your sleep strategy on these, on these That's events? The thing about Ian was the best. You know, I can't remember some of those other people from those teams, but Ian back in the day was among them. Robin. Robin Benincasas was one of them. You no, know, one of the women in the group. Yeah, Kathy Sasson. Um, we you know the teams I was on never really had a sleep strategy. It was one of those things where they see one of the reasons they were champions is that they actually had a sleep strategy. They had <laughs> they had a food strategy. Like one of the things that they would do is they would never stop in a transition area. They would get their they would change you know add add gear, drop stuff, get new food, and then keep going. And then when they want to take a break, they take it like two miles out of the transition area because once you get into a transition area and you stop, it's really hard to get rolling again because that's that's where all the comforts are. You want to get out of the transition area so your 
you are literally away from it and then you take your break and yeah it was you, you boys a lot of uh, a lot of old memories are coming flashing back <laughs> yeah what did you learn about pushing your body and how far you could go i learned well first of all the first time i did i failed you know 1996 i literally failed i just i had to be helicoptered off the course i hurt my knee and just that feeling of the buildup, you know, the months of training for it, and then to fail was a, a staggering loss. It was, it was not like any race that I've been forced to quit. It was, I had so much riding on it. I wanted it to be this really, really special achievement. And then to return home and not have finished after telling all my friends I was going to go do this, you know, the regular was the, the world's toughest race. And then for months to have to explain to people, Oh yeah, how'd that race go for you? Oh, I didn't finish. <laughs> that looked like you're kind of a, a quitter or a loser, and and that. So when I did it in 1997 in Lesotho, um, I just I knew that I couldn't fly all the way halfway around the world to Lesotho and come home again and look my wife in the eye and say, "Oh yeah, I didn't finish." Um, you know, we had we had young kids at the time, and for, for me to leave like that was a huge sacrifice on her part to have to pick up the slack. So. So I just told myself, no matter what, I am not going to step off this course. And I just, the one thing I found was whether I was cold, wet, tired, hungry, or miserable, if I could keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when I didn't want to, even when it was driving rain and I was hungry and I and was exhausted, if I just kept moving, it would get me that, that one step closer to the finish line. And I have to say that that has translated over into my professional career. Uh, I've got so much more perseverance when I write a book about this idea that you know you gotta you kind of get to a point about halfway through the book where you feel like boy am I ever going to see the end and I just know that if I keep writing you know a thousand words you know or two words or ten words it's the same thing as being in the regular laws and, and putting one foot in front of the other even when it's not easy to do so and it's you know it's, it's helped me with my marriage because it's you know marriage is is, is that kind of negotiation to help me as a parent. It's helped me as a coach to, to see that long-term vision of, of yes, it's hard right now. Yes. It is uncomfortable. Yes. I can't see the finish, but I know the finish is out there. We need to keep working towards that. Keep showing up as Des says, yeah, right? keep going. <laughs> I love that quote, by the way. Yeah. Awesome. She, I think she's still working on trademarking that. So you've also done other crazy things like this tough guy race obstacle course race in the UK running with the bulls, which you chronicle over several chapters in this book. It seems like you have a penchant for adventure or maybe just a penchant and gluttony for punishment. Which is it? Yeah. A little bit of both. I, <laughs> uh, like when I saw the, the tough guy race, I was in, I was on a flight from Hong Kong back to LA and I, I was kind of half awake and the guy in the seat seat next to me had, and they had done like a little news feed on that race and the sound was off, but just looking at the people doing the race as they're dunking themselves in, in ice cold water in the British Midlands in the middle of the winter, or, you know, running through these muddy fields and climbing these bramble covered hill slopes. I looked at that and said, I got to do that race. And within three years I had gone and done it. I actually just went back and did it a couple of years ago too. And um, yeah, so I like the adventure of it. I like the chance to do, so like I said, with, as a runner, that diversity, that chance to do something different with running is instead of, you know, the usual neighborhood 5K or, or the big city marathon, it's nice to go out and do something that 
you you know you get that that little giggle when you finish like wow that was really cool but that was <laughs> that was <laughs> a little bit absurd too it's the same with running with the bulls it was an incredible rush to run with the bulls and it's one of those things that it's nice to do you know once in your life you've always got that in your back pocket and then quietly you're always looking to maybe recreate that experience further down the road with something else that intuitively you know speaks to your gut and says that's a good challenge that's what i want to do well it seems like you'd also have to have a partner that's supportive of these things i i assume your your wife is a fan or does she roll her eyes and think oh no what's he got in his mind this time a little bit of both she <laughs> because i'll come up to her with some ideas and she'll look at me like no we're not this, this is not gonna happen but then there, <laughs> but then there are times where if i persist if i really try to sell it she'll say all right just you know, go do it, go have fun. And I've actually got a, a group of friends now. We call ourselves the tough guy book club because we all flew over and did tough guy together about two years ago. And if you don't know tough guy, it's this completely surreal. It, it's the, the event that gave birth to the Spartan races. But if you can imagine uh, the, you know, the, the, the British countryside, it's, you know, the race start last time was 30 degrees. The, the, you know, you have these fields of mud, it's pouring rain and you've got 5,000 people doing this obstacle course in, in, in the dead of winter. As a matter of fact, it got so cold, we, when we, there's a point you have to jump into a lake, uh, off kind of like a walking the plank thing. You jump into the lake, then you have to swim to shore. And we had to punch through the ice. That's how cold it was. Oh, my. And then when you get done, and there, there are no facilities. There are no warm showers when you get done. You literally just bundle yourself up as best you can and, and go, find, go find go back to your hotel as quickly as you can. So... I don't know. I keep looking for those things. I, I enjoy them. Um, I, I like doing that more than the whole, uh, you know, 50 marathons in 50 days type things or kind of those other pursuits that to me kind of feel more like you're just kind of keeping score instead of really enjoying the experience. And that's that. That's one of the things I, that I hope is I continue as a runner that that will always kind of motivate me, just that random running experience that makes me feel just that much more alive and um, and challenges me, pushes me in a new way that I didn't know that I could be pushed. Kind of reminds me of the section of the book where you're talking about tempo effort, what yeah. that means in training and relating that to life lived at tempo. Right. Sort of this, this honest, fast pace, but not so hard that you're going to destroy yourself too quickly. And so it seems like that's a little bit of what you're talking about, just finding that right balance of pushing yourself while also not going overboard. Well, I think we need to find that balance. I've, I'm not a person who finds balance easily. And so, you know, the, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I was really focused on writing, just making it as a writer and, and to the point that I've left little time in, in my life for exercise. And so I was, you know, all in on writing. And then all of a sudden I realized I needed to get fit again. So I was all in on running again and to the detriment of, of my, of my writing. So just that, that finding that sweet spot, finding that, that ability to balance all these things is not easy, but I think it's super important. It is that life lived, lived at tempo type thing where you, you feel like you found the sweet spot, you make it all work. You, you find a way to, you know, eat right, sleep right. Um, do the mental and emotional work that comes with, with a, doing a great job at your, your, your lifelong pursuit of your vocation and then making sure that your, your body is fit so that you can, so that your mind stays sharp and you can keep doing these things. And 
And if somebody says, hey, let's go climb that mountain or let's go, you know, run along the beach, you can do anything. You don't feel like you're limited mentally or physically by, by anything because you found a way to stay in balance. And that, to me, that's a lifelong struggle and I'm, I'm still working at it. <laughs> still working. So let's talk about your Olympic goal. in the middle of the book or so you kind of get to this you're pushed you're pushed to come up with a goal something tangible that you could strive for as in one of your returns to running and but you're a little bit vague as to what actual event you were training for i'm assuming it was a running event but you didn't really specify we training for the olympic trials in the marathon we training to get back on the track to do steeple at that age I, I don't know so tell us more about that pursuit it does seem like it was real and tangible for you but ultimately went un, unfinished so talk about that part of it yeah i mean in retrospect it's a little embarrassing but i think that that's the runner's version of a midlife crisis and i always <laughs> thought i think i always thought i was bulletproof from the midlife crisis but um you know, kind of in the 2003, I think, I was 42, 43 years old, and I was just, I got myself in super good shape. I just, I really, I really worked. I got myself, and I was just running fast. It was, it was just easy to go out and just knock down, you know, 10 miles sub six. And, and I was thinking, man, I, you know, what if I really challenge myself? And then, of course, instead of doing something simple, like say, you know, let's, let's do, you know, 245 marathon or something like this, something that would have been, you know, the kind of pursuit somebody of that age with, you know, specific level of fitness could accomplish. No, I decided that I was going to go qualify for the Olympic trials. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to run the steeple and I was going to go back in the steeple. Wow. The steeple. Yeah, it was. And so I trained, I did everything. And the thing about it is, you know, as a lifelong runner, I thought I knew how to train in, and I didn't. I mean, I look back now with with these years of coaching experience and the number of coaching clinics that I've been to and in the stuff I've learned from my fellow coaches. And I think my basic philosophy of just go out and do a, a number of long runs and then go fast as much as possible isn't really the smartest way to train. But but I did get fit and then and I got to the point that I did a I didn't actually do a steeple time trial. I did like a I think I did a 3K on the track, but it was good. It was close to my, my college steeple time, which was, you know, I think 9, 10 or something like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, which wasn't bad. It wasn't great. But at the same time, I felt like I was doing something special. It was a really delusional, but it was <laughs> one of those things that it, it got me up out of bed. I mean, I was doing, I get up in the morning, do, do a run. I, I go to the afternoon, I do another run and I was really getting fit and it was looking good and, you know, I could run around town without my shirt on and, and I felt, you know, I felt like a God. <laughs> it's just one of those things. I think it's one of those things that gets you through the, the day sometimes. And then, of course, I was I was umpiring a, a little league game and I was because uh, my son was, I think, 10 at the time or something. And the, the I, I was just wearing running shoes, as, as all runners do, you know, but actual actual umpires wear steel-toed shoes for a reason and a, a fastball went by the catcher dropped on my big toe split the nail you know it was you know bled through my shoes that day and then I tried to come back too soon from it and I got hurt and then it just became one of those things where I realized that that dream was over but I needed to find a way to take all this new fitness and put it into the perspective of that was a big accomplishment in and of itself 
the Olympics were never going to happen, but it was, a, <laughs> it was a nice carrot to have out there. Um, like I said, looking back, it feels a little bit uh, indulgent and embarrassing, but at the time, <laughs> it's, you know, like I said, a little delusional, but at the time it felt real. It felt like this is going to happen. So anyway, we move on. Yeah, shoot, well, yeah, shoot for the stars, land on the moon. I think that's what they say <laughs> sometimes. So you landed on the moon and were ultimately dashed by a fastball to the toe. That's That's a tough way to go out. Yeah, and as I mentioned in the book, I mean, not more than a few weeks later, Sports Illustrated called and wanted me to go to um, Saipan to cover, to take part in an Xterra off-road uh, triathlon. And, it, you know, it was just, I was really fit. And I've seen pictures of, of that race, and I, I certainly looked very lean. But, um, you know, I, I flatted. I, did, I, I hadn't swam in, in years, so I was lucky that the course was so shallow that I could literally walk on the ocean floor during the <laughs> swim. I walked a mile at two flats within the first mile on the bike, and it's that same thing with the raid. I couldn't very well go back home after flying 5,000 miles across the ocean and tell my wife that I had quit the race. So I literally did 25 miles on a mountain bike with no with no tires, I just on bare rims because <laughs> oh I was out of tubes. And then, you know, then eight miles through the jungle. And I was proud of myself for finishing. Let's put it that way, because I was dead last. I was so far behind that they were closing everything up because it had taken me so long to ride 25 miles with, with no tubes. But um, it goes back to what I was talking about before. If you, if, you, if you put one foot in front of the other, if you keep trying, if you keep challenging yourself, and it took a lot of self-talk to get me through that particular race, but I got done, and I have very good memories of that day. I have very good memories of the fact that I challenged myself and pushed myself, and I got through a race that I should not have finished. I know that feeling. Three years ago, I walked the last five miles of the Boston Marathon on a stress fracture and ran my personal worst marathon. But in some ways, it's my fondest memories of a race because I finished. I got it done. So let's talk about training principles. You've been coaching, you said, now for 15 years, Catholic high school there where you live. I believe you started because your sons were in the program is that right no you know what happened was i was um i was over covering the tour de france and uh, i called home one night i was in lords and i still remember the phone booth and everything and my my son got on the phone and he was a lacrosse player and he said hey my lacrosse coach is transferring to this new high school they're opening and i want to go to school there and i was like uh, well that's a private school we're public school people and i was you know <laughs> about the money it was going to cost to go there but you, you know, so I told myself, look, wait, wait until the tour is over. When I get home, uh, I'll go with you. We'll go talk to the school. We took the, you know, so we went over, we took the tour of the school and halfway through the tour, they introduced me to the athletic director. And I told him, I said, you know, I ran competitively in high school and college. I still run. If your cross country coach needs an assistant, I would love to help out. And he said, we don't have a cross country coach. Do you want the job? <laughs> and that's how I became a coach. And so that's how my son went to school there and ultimately all of my three sons went to school there and I, and my son transitioned over from lacrosse and became a, a captain of my cross country team when he was a senior and but that's how I fell into coaching and like I said before you know after all those years of running and you know remember too when this happened I had just come off my uh, my my vain attempt to make the Olympic team so 
I was super fit. I felt like I was in tune with what it took to make great runners. And what I found pretty soon was I didn't know anything about how to coach athletes. And I literally had to read, you know, you know, I read, you know, Peter Coe, I read David Martin, I read Jack Daniels, Joe V Hill, anything I could find to learn how to be a good coach. And of course, as you know, as a coach yourself, you're always finding something new you can add to your stuff. You know, Steve Magnus mm-hmm. has been a great help, but I find even now that I'm always fine tuning my program from season to season to make better runners. Always learning. What was your biggest mistake back then as a new coach? I think it was not having a plan. <laughs> I was I was coaching a team that the way that most runners coach themselves, which is you get up in the morning, you say, I'm going to go for a run. And you just randomly go for a run. You don't have a purpose to your run. And every workout should have a purpose. And that and every aspect of that purpose should be a part of a greater overarching plan for the whole season. So our, for instance, our cross-country and track seasons are, it's a 22-week training evolution. And I've transitioned our training away from, they use the old formula of you have a base phase and then you have kind of a, you start layering in speed. And now we pretty much do a little bit of everything all year long. There's always a long run. There's always a tempo run. There's always some level of speed. Our, our feet move fast every day. But these are things I didn't know back then. At the time, all I thought was, we're going to go out for a run. We're going to run hard. And we're going to maybe do a tempo, but maybe we'll do something on the track. And it was just, it was all over the place. And the results spoke for themselves. Random. The random approach to training. Yeah, right. It does not work. <laughs> so what would you say are your core tenets now as a coach? Um, it's it, If I boiled it down, it was that strength plus speed equals success. And I stole that from uh, Coach Gags, Frank Gagliano. It, but it's real simple. Um, during It's tougher during cross-country because cross-country you need more volume to develop aerobic strength. But in track season, you know, Monday is, is a strength day. We might do a Michigan. We might do... Uh, a very specific two-mile based workout, and then we'll have a recovery day on Tuesday with a, with a very short. I'm a believer in very short recovery days, just maybe three to four miles at a very comfortable pace, plus some strides afterwards. Wednesday is a is a morning run of a tempo plus some strides afterwards. Afternoon is some very short, sharp speed, kind of 800 pace type speed. Recover on uh, Thursday something very fast, like a 600, 400, 400 all out on Friday. And then a very long run. I'm a big believer in like a 14 to 16 mile run for my, my athletes. And then if, if the mileage all balances out, I like about 60 to 70 miles a week for my guys and about 50 miles a week for the girls. If they've got their mileage by Saturday, we'll take Sunday off. But if they still need a few miles, I'll, I'll have them go out and do whatever they need to get their weekly mileage goal on, on Sunday. So that's a pretty high mileage program for a high school program. Where you know what you'd find, if you if this was back in the '90s, that would be true. But more and more, you're looking at the the great programs, do even more. I know that Great Oak out here and uh, uh, Manlius Prep back in New York, they're much bigger mileage programs. They're doing 70 to 80, pretty much year round. And back in the you know back in the 1990s, the number of high school boys that broke that broke nine minutes for the two mile. It was extremely low. That was back when we were in a very much, we as, as Americans as a whole with their distance running, that was the, the fallow period of American distance running, was it was based on this really low mileage principle plus maybe some cross training. And that's why only, I think, five boys in all of the 1990s broke nine minutes for the two mile. 
Whereas at the Arcadia Invitational just last week, I think 15 boys broke it in just one race. We've, mm-hmm. we've gone back to more of a volume type running to develop, develop aerobic strength, but you know, not that crazy 90 to hundred mile a week stuff for high school kids. But, but I think you need more miles. If you're going to be an elite level athlete, you need to develop that aerobic strength. And the way to develop aerobic strength is to run miles. Heck yeah. My, my episode number seven is titled miles matter for that reason. Volume is the foundation of, of all training and consistency on top of that. How do you get a high school kid to running that much mileage without hurting them? You, um, you build it over time. Like our, our freshmen will never run more than 35 to 40 miles a week. And you kind of, you, you kind of layer it in through, you know, 35 to 40 in cross country. Then the following, then the track season in the spring, maybe you're 40 to 45. And I always add like 10% per year. So by the time they're seniors, the idea of any doing anything less than 60 miles a week feels like an easy week for them. And we don't even bring the mileage down that much when we, when it comes to the state championships, we, we tend to keep the mileage pretty high all the way through the season. Because I think if you give, it's not like the marathon where you need to do a really big taper, but if you, if you are in a routine of running X number of miles a week, and then all of a sudden you try to cut that by 20 or 30%, the body is not used to that. The body needs those miles, I think at a certain point. And then when it's time to rest and recover at the end of the season, then you just you know, cut it all together and take three weeks off. I agree with that for sure. What would you tell parents that have kids that might be showing interest in maybe middle school years in running? What's the best way to develop, or even me, I've got a 10 year old who is showing interest, but he's primarily playing soccer as his primary sport, which to me is the perfect training ground for running later in life. What would you tell somebody who's trying to develop their kid's interest in the sport before they might get to high school where they're, where programming becomes more formal. I'd say be patient. You know, running should be should be fun. It should feel like play. And if I see a lot of parents who have their kids in an age group program at 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're super intense. They want their kids to be a champion at, at that age, and they can they can go to all the youth meets, and they can be the parent of that star athlete. But then, you know, puberty sets in, the maybe the kid loses interest because they have other things going on in their life. And oh, that's how a lot of age groupers wash out of running when they're 13, 14, 15 years old before they really start growing into their bodies. And so, you know, and I, you know, I should say too, that I was an age group runner myself. I mean, I began running with a group when I was 12 years old and our coach kept it, kept it fun, kept it light. And that's, the, that's how you develop you know, lifelong runners. And so I would tell parents don't, you know, if your kid runs fast, that's great. But really nothing matters before they're in high school. They're, no one gets recruited for college based on a great time in the 1500 as an eighth grader. You have to you have to grow into your body. You have to throw down really good high school times to get a scholarship or to get a look to go on to a big time division one program. So just enjoy those, those, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old years, because that's a developmental stage. It should feel fun. It should build a fascination for running, but it's not, it's not the meal ticket. It's not going to punch your ticket. One of the things you talk about in the book is rest equals strength and balancing recovery and all of this so that you can't actually get fitter. Talk about that, how you work it into your program. You know, like I said, I should preface it by saying that I never, I wasn't a rest guy per se. 
until I began to see the benefits of really letting people, you know, making easy days easy and, and keeping the volume low on an easy day and avoiding having people uh, turn a four mile recovery run into a full on tempo run just because they feel like that's going to make them that much faster. It, it really helps the body to, on those days when you got to go hard, to go really hard. Some of our hard days, the kids are running 13, 14, 15 miles with a, a morning run and an afternoon run with, you know, mile repeats. I mean, those are very demanding days. I mean, days so hard that they might sometimes take, require two recovery days. And I always look for that, but it, but they definitely need a recovery day the day after. And the day after that, if they're still not quite right, if their legs are heavy, we'll go a little bit longer than four miles, but it still will be at a recovery pace. But, and I, but I learned that the hard way. I would just drive athletes, push, 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 push. And then all of a sudden you realize that they're not getting better, that they're showing up, their faces are tired, they look dehydrated. Uh, all these little things that tells you that they're starting to get overtrained. And that's not the way to make good runners. When you say easy running, what does that mean? Conversational pace. I don't, I don't give my runners a pace, but I, 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 I tell them like this. I said, you know, we're gonna, we've got a run that's called fence and back. It's just like this beautiful run on a trail that goes to a fence. And then we turn around at the fence and we come back. And, and I want them talking and having a conversation, but they still have to have good running economy. And I'll go out there and I'll drive out in the car to the turnaround so that I can make sure they're doing it right. If they're just shuffle jogging through that thing where their running economy is, is falling apart and they're they're kind of rolling their shoulders forward and they're dropping their hips and they're just in in their you know they're turning a run that should be done at about you know for a girl maybe eight minute pace for a guy about six thirty to seven minute pace. If they're turning that kind of run into ten to twelve minutes, that's not rest. That's just wasted time. And so there's kind of a fine line there with these recovery runs, but I tell them to keep it conversational, but at the same time, they have to, <clears throat> excuse me, they have to run. <clears throat> don't, don't let the form break down. Yeah, exactly. It's a form is, is everything. It, it really is. And people, I, I don't know about you when you coach, but I, I hammer people all the time. You know, don't, when people rotate their bodies, I don't want the, I don't want to see the hands going across the midline. I want, to, I want you to have a strong core so that your hips can be forward because when you drop your hips, you lose power with, with your, your knee lift. And all these little things that that happen when you start going too slow and not really focusing on form, but focusing on just you know making a mockery of the run itself. And one of the tricks I use personally is, and oftentimes people save their racing flats for, for workouts or race day. Sometimes I wear them on easy run days because... If I'm inefficient in flats, then I feel it. <laughs> and so it forces me to keep it slow, but also to keep the form in check. Because if, if I'm not, otherwise I feel that pounding in a way that's uncomfortable in, in flats. You know, that's actually a really good idea. You know, you know um, back when I wrote this book, it was kind of a reaction to um, Born to Run. And not that I had a problem with Born to Run, but I... I was philosoph- philosophically opposed to the, to the thesis of the book that that barefoot running was was the key to being a better runner. And, and the reason I say that is because the reason a lot when a lot of adults come to running in their 30s, let's say, or their 40s, and they're brand new runners, 
by that time they have they have lost the ability to run like they ran as a child, which is a very pure form of running. And by that I mean their their core is weak, and so they drop their hips way down, and and they they kind of they bend forward at the waist, and they kind of and they they're not running; they're just kind of moving in a very awkward position. But if you watch a child run, children don't drop their hips. Children don't run hunched over. They run their way you're supposed to run. They run tall. They run with their hips forward, and and I think what barefoot running forces people to do just because of the fact that you have to land midfoot with barefoot running, you can't go heel toe. It forces that posture change that you don't necessarily have to have with traditional running shoes. Now, but at the same time, like with my runners, I could never have my runners run 60 to 70 miles a week barefoot. Right. But if you teach proper running economy and you teach them to, to land midfoot and you know, right below your center of gravity and keep those shoulders back and your chin up, then it's the same thing as barefoot running. You're just having that perfect running stride. You just you're teaching it to people to point in their life where they don't want to have those bad habits. So other recovery things you talk about ice baths in in the book as a recovery ritual of sorts, especially in the mountain mountain streams when you're at preseason camp as a also a bit of a camaraderie tool. Have you read? Christy Eschwanden's book, Good to Go. I have not. Have you, have you seen this? It's about the science of recovery. It talks about the, the dubious science backing the efficacy of ice baths. Yeah, you know. Any, uh, any thoughts should, on that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I've, I've read all the research, and um, I've changed my position on ice baths, by the way, since I wrote this. So okay. when I first wrote this, this was the heyday of ice baths. And I had purchased eight large uh, trash cans, you know, rubber trash cans, kind of about three feet tall. And, and I, I saved them. I chained them up at the school where I coach so they could just be used only for ice baths. And we would have ice probably delivered to the school two or three times a week. And then we fill those trash cans and we get the runners in them. And that was the big heyday of ice baths. And I was, if people were anti-ice bath, I would fight them to the death because I thought ice <laughs> baths were the ticket. And then my good friend, Jeff Messer, who coaches at uh, Desert Vista Prep in Phoenix, who's also an exercise physiologist, who was also very much pro-ice bath, um, shared his, his data with me about the science of ice bath. And basically, when you, take, when you do a hard workout, you cause inflammation in the body and you break down the muscles. And, and that sounds like a terrible thing, but it's actually a really good thing because that's how we get better. And... And that's why the rest day is so important because it's during that rest day that we, the body starts using its own healing mechanisms to fix those things that you've broken down and make the muscle stronger. We get we get stronger by breaking muscle down and then resting. It recovers. It becomes stronger. But ice baths take away from that. The ice bath actually stop that process. And so, so I, then I went completely anti ice bath. It's like ice baths are they're the devil. We're not going to do ice baths. We're all done. But then. I kind of came to a happy medium because I found, and I see this in Mammoth, and the reason we, we do we do ice bathing in the stream in Mammoth is just because everybody gets so happy when they get in the water, and they don't want to get in. But when, when they do get in and they take this ice bath, everybody comes out with this big smile on their face because ice baths, they feel good. They make your legs feel good. And, you know, that's the thing. They halt the recovery process, but at the same time, they take sore and tired legs to make them feel better. So what I do in season is if, if we do an ice bath at all, 
it will be the day before an important race. So if people come to me and they say, gosh, you know, we're racing tomorrow. I don't really feel good about this. My legs feel a little bit heavy. Well, I know that they've recovered because we've already had the workout's been two days ago. But if I throw them in the ice bath for 10 minutes the day before a big race, they just feel that little bit more confidence in knowing that their legs feel fresh. And so that's where I stand with ice baths right now. Interesting. Yep. I like it. it. And the way it talks, it's talked about in that book is that for some people, it could also be a recovery routine of sorts that allows them basically to have a process to, to get their mind right, to come yeah. down off the workout and to de-stress and put themselves transition basically into a recovery state once they get out. But, but it does also mention the science you refer to, which is that it short circuits that inflammation and then rebuild process that you really want. So you got to kind of think about how it works for you. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, it provides such a mental boost that it can't be all negative, but, but again, you know, if every workout is going to have a purpose, <clears throat> you need to make sure that you don't negate that purpose by doing something that's going to stop that, that healing process right away. You want to make sure the body has a chance to do its own thing to develop physically and um, I think you got to find that right balance between the physical and the emotional. How do you deal with runners that have trouble with the easy run or with resting or slowing down when they need to? Because I find occasionally I have adult athletes that struggle with that because in their mind they have to run faster to get faster and can't really embrace this idea of balance. So how do you deal with those difficult cases? What I make him do is I don't I don't put him in with the team. You know, a, <clears throat> we do all of our running on trails. We're, we're very rarely on the track. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, if somebody, for instance, t- tries to turn, routinely tries to turn the recovery run into a race or a contest, and then they show up on race day and they're flat or they're, they go from being, you know, all kick-ass to, to can't even get around the track, um, what I do is, I force them to slow it down by not letting them off campus to run on trails. I make them do a four mile or five mile recovery run on the track as I watch and as I keep the stopwatch to make sure they're running the pace that I want them to run. And what happens is they eventually get so bored of running around the track <laughs> that they promise me that they won't do it anymore. It, it doesn't always work just because some you have some days where some people feel good and they just want to go fast. But I just always remind them that the, the, the important the important thing is to have it on a race day. The important thing is not to have it in practice. You want to be your best when you tow the line and you're going out there to, to get, you know, get a PR or, or win the race. As a coach, I always think those are the famous last words before somebody gets hurt where they say, yeah. I went too fast, but it felt good. <laughs> and then awesome. yeah. inevitably a couple of days later, they end up with some issue that takes them out for longer. You know, I, I had a girl not too long ago that was, she was training so well, and it was recovery day, and she said, can I, can I recover with the boys? And I said, yeah, you know, I think you're ready to kind of run with them. I mean, they're going to go recovery day. Well, she, she wasn't ready, and, and she came back, and within two or three days, she had suffered a, a stress fracture because she was pushing on an issue that she should have held back. Yes, that's no good. So a couple more things here that I wanted to talk about, and then we'll wrap this. One, you talk about the quote from Coach Messina, choosing the pain of suffering versus the pain of regret. 
I don't know exactly where that quote came from, but it's a quote that, that rings true in my head. I got it from a military buddy of mine. Every time the alarm goes off at 4.30 a.m. to get up for my 5.30 a.m. runs. Talk about that quote and what it's meant to you through the years. It's, it's that perspective quote. Um, it's, it's that moment where, uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, in college, I stepped off the track a couple of times. And sometimes just because I got bored, like running the 5,000, 13 laps, I get about six or seven laps in and it's like, this is stupid. I don't, <laughs> I literally stepped off the track two times because of that. <clears throat> and, and then, you know, when I, when I didn't finish the raid in 1996, it was the, the regret that came over that washed over me was, you know, very, very profound. And so I think, again, it's one of those life lessons that running teaches you after you, and you have to learn it firsthand. But once you have you once you look back at certain things and you have that regret, those are the things you remember for a very long time. And when you have a, sometimes when you have a good race, you know, for instance, my, my teams have won three California state championships. I can, the, the, the meet is held in Fresno and uh, it's a six hour bus ride to Fresno and there's a euphoria of winning the championship, but within two or three hours on that bus ride back home, the regret of all the things I, I'm mean, seriously, the, all the euphoria is set aside. I'm sitting there on the bus with the state championship trophy in the seat next to me. And all I'm doing is making a list of the things I did wrong. All the things I regret <laughs> about the season, all the things I could do better. I think, not everybody's wired like that, but I think a lot of us are. And I think that's why when you, as a runner, when you experience some kind of regret because of something that you did or did not do or, or some moment where you didn't push your limits, you that's that's a lesson. That's, that's something that you learn and that stays with you for a very long time. One of my favorite quotes in the book is where you say, people without process lose their way. And I love the related anecdote of you getting out early to the meet with the tent putting the tent in the same spot every time because that would put your team in the right position to basically have an efficient morning to burn as little energy as possible before the actual gun went off. And I think it's so important in, in training for a distance race to, to focus on the process, all the little details of the process. And if you can control those variables, then usually magic things happen. Maybe not right when you want them to, but eventually they will if you just stick with your process. So talk about that side of things. Yeah, okay. So compare that quote with when I first started coaching and it was a very random approach to coaching. And one of the great things that coaching has taught me in my personal life is the power of the process. And, and, and I love the ultimate goal. I love that when a book gets published, for instance, or when I turn it into a publisher, I love when my teams win championships. I love when my athletes win races, but it's that day in and day out commitment to doing the little things, you know, hydration, sleep, core, um, a proper workout routine, all those little routines that, that make, that make for a great overarching season, that 22 week training evolution. You have to do those things each and every day. You have to be committed to the process. And, and you, you know, you talk about putting the team canopy in a certain place, for every meet. I mean, I literally put the team canopy in the same place every year. And I've been doing so for 10 years um, at the state meet at every cross country meet, because when, 
when the when the brain has to make more decisions, the brain gets tired. If the, we don't have an unlimited amount of energy in the brain to keep making decisions. That's why when you go for a long drive in a car, even though you've done nothing physically active, your brain has been working very hard for six or seven hours. And when you get out of the car, you're very tired. So the less, the fewer decisions that my athletes have to make on race day, the fewer things you have to think about. And the more routine the whole thing gets, you know, they know where to go for the team canopy. They know how many minutes they're supposed to do for their warm-up routine. They know how many strides they're supposed to do before the race. They know what they're supposed to do for the cool down. If I can take as many variables away from the mental thought process and make the actual race day routine part of the overarching process of of the training season, so they know how to train, then they know how to race. And all and when all that stuff fits together, I think that's when you can you can get an athlete in a position to focus completely on racing, completely on being their best, completely on pushing their limits instead of worrying about, you know, where, where's the team canopy? Where's, where's my water bottle? All that little stuff. If we take that out of the equation, I think we get better athletes. I love it. We'll end it there. Thank you for this conversation. Everybody go check out to be a runner just released on in paperback for these, for the second release. And, Really, really, really good book. Thanks, Martin, for joining me on the on this chat. Really, really appreciate it. No, thanks. It was really a lot of fun, and thanks for letting me riff. That was a, that was a great time. There you go, everybody. Martin Dugard, go check out the book again. To be a runner, highly recommend it. It's a, a relatively easy, fun, light read, and hopefully you'll take away some of the things that we talked about in this episode, or probably find some new things that are relevant for you. I enjoyed it. I'd recommend you check it out as well. Of course, thanks for Martin for joining me. Thanks to you for listening. This has been episode 124 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.